morning we look to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 42 to 51. The need to be prepared for his coming. And this sermon is entitled, Keep Watch. Keep Watch. For that is what Christ commands. But I'll read uh, verses 42 to 51 as we close out chapter 24. And then we'll explain what it means. Uh, Verse 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming... He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, As we come to this text this morning, the warning from the Lord Jesus Christ is directly related to what takes place in the previous passage. And in fact, the sense of this passage is since the events have occurred, Jesus is further explaining the need to be prepared in light of what will occur. And so it is directly connected both grammatically, as it says, therefore, and also contextually as it points to the events that have preceded the text. And so the warning from the Lord is to be on the alert. He's talking to those who belong to him. He's talking to those who live in the time of the future tribulation events and their need to not only discern and interpret those events, but live in light of them. And then he's also speaking to the generation of his disciples who are also supposed to keep watch, to keep watch over themselves in the sense that they understand the things that are written concerning prophecy and then uh, by the effect of what's written it certainly comes down to us in this generation of the church age to be on the alert to always be thinking about the imminence of the Lord's return the fact that he can return at any time and so the sober warning is to keep watch to keep watch and you'll notice that here the object of men's not only affections but the object of their sense in which they need to keep watch is Christ himself. They need to look for him. They need to wait uh, for him. They need to keep their their uh, their vision on him. And so earlier, Christ had essentially answered the disciples' question uh, as it relates to the future events that will take place in the tribulation period. And they were supposed to interpret those signs before them as uh, being ready for the Lord's return. And here the caution is quite the same, but it adds another feature to it. It is the sense in which they need to be ready for Christ himself. So it moves from them being ready and discerning the events before them to the fact that they have to be ready for Christ. That they have to be alert 
because they do not know when he is coming. And so the disciples of the Lord are to consider that he can come at any time. That is the foundation of the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, that the Lord is always uh, or our thoughts of him are always eminent, that the Lord can come back at any time, that even the sobriety of looking at the events of the world and the events of the tribulation and all those things, no generation should think that they're not uh, in the uh, in the in the uh, imminence of the Lord. So there's always a sense that even though we look to interpret events, we know that those events can be activated just like that. When the Lord is ready, because it's up to him, it's his prerogative. And so we see even in the ministry of Paul the Apostle toward the Thessalonians, they had taken up a posture in which I caution uh, not only the church, but uh, but I also caution us as individuals that they had become lazy. They had become uh, somewhat relaxed that they had become uh, they had become distracted from the Lord's coming and they had been distracted by normal things. Uh, in fact, their view of it was since the Lord is coming back, we need not uh, labor any longer. We need not carry on about our lives and the things that he's given us to do, that there's a certain because of prevailing wickedness in front of them. There was a certain complacency that set in. And so the, uh, the Lord, through Paul, the apostle warned about that. As well, but there's a sense in which the preparation uh, that we look at in the following verses of Matthew 25 is necessary in light of the fact that the Lord is further explaining in Matthew 25, we don't know when He's coming, and so since we do not know when He's coming, we ought to always expect that He will be here at any time, and so that is also not an attack against uh, understanding the chronology, understanding the timeline of the doctrine of the end times, but it is the fact that if you understand them correctly, you always live in light of the fact that the Lord can come back at any time. That's not only the Christian hope and the Christian expectation, that's joined to the gospel proclamation. So when a man is proclaiming the gospel, he's proclaiming the need to be ready for the return of Christ because that event is sure to happen because it has been decreed as such. And we also see in other passages, when you look to the epistles, even with Peter, Peter warned the people not to grow complacent, not to grow weary. In fact, he warned the Christians not to look to their own persecution as some kind of hopelessness uh, in and of itself, but to know that that led to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and identification with him. Uh, Paul wrote that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that he repays those who assault his name and he will do so in many ways that are righteously and justly done and so we look to that even as we look to our passage that all those things are brought together to tell us to keep watch to keep watch and so that is a sobering warning we do not know the exact day when the lord will return but we do know that he is coming back and how do we know that he will return well because he said he will return he said it very plainly, and he's been explaining it in our passage. He's been explaining in the previous verses that he's coming back, and he's giving cosmic signs. He's given societal signs. He's giving the signs of the end times. He's demonstrated that he will be coming back again, and he also 
will, in the passages that follow ours, speak to that very point when he is before the false tribunal of the religious leaders. That he's telling them he's coming back. And he's coming back to judge the wicked. And he's also coming back to gather the righteous, those whom he has deemed righteous, by his own sacrifice. And so the hope of the Christian is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That is the hope of the Christian. The hope of the Christian is not what is happening in society uh, to one degree or another. The hope of the Christian is the kingdom that will be unshakable, the kingdom that will be eternal, and the king who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. So our geopolitical hope is centered around the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. That is the Christian's hope, the fact that Christ is coming back again and the fact that he will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Our hope is summed up in the covenants. And so we have an adversary who wants to distract us with temporal things and pervert the meaning, pervert the hope that we have in the covenants and try to pervert the covenants themselves. And so in us, we have to be watchful. We have to be watchful just as the generation to whom Jesus is speaking, both past, uh, both in the present, and also in addition to that in the future. We know that he's going to return, and we are not told when he will return. And it is why we're not to make predictions of his return. But we know that he's coming back. And we know that his return is always near. His return is always near because we live in the last age before his return. Since we are on this side of the cross, we do not live in the Old Testament times. We're not awaiting a Messiah to come and lay down his life and place himself on the cross and sacrifice himself for sinners. That event has taken place. Now we're waiting in the church age for the return of the head of the church. And so we're to be prepared. The Lord in verse 43 sets before us an analogy, an analogy. And he uses this analogy to show his disciples how prepared they must be. He says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Essentially, if the master of the house, the owner, knew when the thief was breaking into his home, he would have put all manners of preparation in place to ensure the thief would either not be successful or to thwart his efforts. The master of the house would have watched, as it says in verse 43, as it says in verse 42. He would have prepared in such a way so as to prevent the breaking. And the suddenness of the thief prevailing upon him and his house. But as such, the Lord is coming to essentially interrupt and do away with temporal human history. And in the sense, he relates his coming like a thief in the night. He's not equating himself with a thief. He's demonstrating an analogy of the suddenness of his return. That when he breaks into the uh, onto the stage and into the quote unquote house of human history, it will be sudden. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. And his people will be the only ones who will have have the foresight and the wisdom to have expected. it. 
So the Lord warns them in this way. It's not necessarily a call to simply marvel at the fact that his return will be sudden. But it is a call to arm yourself with greater preparation. And it was first to the people in the generation to which he will appear. That's the part we do not know. So that's the part that makes every generation uh, need to be prepared. But to all who are the elect of God, every person who belongs to God must be prepared as the Lord is coming at any moment. And if he's coming at any moment, he's coming at a moment's notice. Look at verse 44. For this reason, you also must be ready. You also must be ready. And so it's not simply that he's giving them uh, a timeline of the last things and telling them their place in it is to simply be aware of the events of the events. He's telling them you also must be prepared because you do not know if this will prevail upon your generation. You do not know if it's going to happen in your time. And so the expectation is preparation, not complacency. And so the, the, the moment people expect him, and we see that even in the parable of the ten virgins, but the moment the people expect him is the moment in which he will not come. But yet, you ought not let the false prophecies that have been going on throughout the ages where so many civilizations, so many false prophets, so many false teachers have come along and tried to predict the dates of the Lord's return. And all that serves to do is to distract and to cause a certain discouragement, but also to cause a certain complacency. But all their false prophecy aside, even when they're wrong, we know they're wrong because the Lord has said we do not have that information. We do not know. And so the fact that we do not know prepares us at a moment's notice. And what prepares us? Well, the whole of Scripture. The scripture is what prepares us for the coming of the Lord. The fact that we look at the events in the world in front of us and we're armed with divine wisdom and truth in scripture, that's what prepares us for the second coming. And so our hearts are not geared toward preventing the Lord's coming or amassing for ourselves all that we can have in this world to prevent it, to make it easier. We know it's going to be an interruption. And we spoke concerning that with reference to the verses that precede our own and the events themselves, that the Lord's return is going to be cosmic. It's going to be sudden. It's going to have a judgmental component, meaning it will be judging against wickedness uh, and righteous judgment. But it will also have a vindication component to it. And so we must be prepared. We must be prepared. And it's not a matter of ordering earthly affairs. That's not how we prepare as those who are awaiting the coming of the Lord. And it's based on what the Lord himself says. But to be prepared, in a sense, even for the world at large who this hour does not believe, is to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. To believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is the preparation. To trust in Jesus Christ alone as the substitute for sinners. It is to believe that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace and that you have no righteousness in you at all. 
There is nothing in you that can commend yourself to God for eternal salvation and therefore nothing that can reconcile you to God. It is to believe that God crushed his son on the cross on behalf of sinners and the son remained perfect, sinless, holy, righteous, and God. That is how one prepares. It is essentially the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ and how an individual prepares for the return of Christ. That's how you prepare for the return of Christ. It's not buying up the world's supplies and the world's goods and trying to prevent disaster. That is an earthly preparation, but spiritual preparation deals with eternity. And that is what the Lord is calling for because we're looking at passages leading right up against his crucifixion, his sacrifice on the cross, his substitutionary atonement. But what does all this relate to? It's not only preparedness. It's not only preparedness. Because as we have been saying, the gospel according to Matthew is a gospel of distinctions. So it's not only preparedness, but it's the kind of preparedness that we relate to faithfulness. That it's being prepared over time, moment to moment. That it's understanding no matter what is happening outside of the annals of Christian truth and faith... That the believer is armed with the truth and he's prepared for when his Lord returns, he's ready to be with him. In verse 45, as we read it, he says, who then, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? And this is on the heels of saying that essentially the Lord is not returning at a time when men think he'll return. The Lord does not say that it is impossible for his servants to patiently wait for his return with vigilance and expectation. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying that the expectation is that you will be vigilant and you will be patient and you will live a life that is befitting of being gathered with him in eternity. It is why the bad habit of, of, of both modern religion and modern evangelicalism, which in a sense, seeks to vindicate men as they apostatize in their later years is something that the Bible simply does not affirm and it certainly does not teach. It teaches consistency over time is the mark of faithfulness to God. It's consistency over time as one meets with either the end of his life or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how you judge if a man is faithful to his Lord, if a man is proving to be one who has allegiance to Christ. And that is how we test ourselves. That's how you test yourself in light of the coming of the Lord. But this, this one, this one is weighty. And so the Lord poses that question in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom the master, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Here we realize that the believers are not only to know that the Lord will return, but they are also to wait with the expectancy that his return is imminent. That means it can happen at any moment. They are to have the right motive in their hearts to expect his return. Thus, living as such, living as not only representatives of him in the gospel, but living as representatives to him as they await his return. That not only deals with action, but it deals with the thoughts. 
It deals with how men conduct themselves in the world around them. And this is what he's warning the disciples of. And so they are to have the right motives in their heart to expect his return. And then their lives ought to be in complete service and allegiance to him while they wait for him. Essentially, Jesus is not grading on the curve when he returns. It's going to be the standard, the objective standard of what he's laid out in his teachings and commandments. And if one is obedient, they have proven love and loyalty and allegiance to him. And if not, they have proven uh, the opposite and they will be judged. So this one is not only whom the master has put in charge of his house, as Jesus says, he not only keeps faithful watch over his duties, but he also keeps faithful watch over the affairs of his master. We see that in the question in verse 45, but also in verses 46 and 47. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. He will inherit the kingdom essentially. The master blesses him. He blesses him for being the one who is a faithful steward. He blesses him by giving him more. And we know that the parables speak of that very thing. That there are parables in the Bible that speak of granting more to those who have proven faithful in what they have. The parable of the talents. The kingdom belongs to him. Not because of his performance. Not because he's done something to earn anything. Because this is all God's doing. God giving him possessions and God giving him rulership. But this also speaks of what the original intent was for man in the garden. It also speaks for the promise that man is given in the Noahic covenant. To rule over the earth. To rule over the creatures. And we also see in this the Abrahamic covenant. The sense in which man is promised to be blessed among the families of Abraham. But also how man is to possess the land. We see it in the Davidic covenant. That by extension of having an eternal king. That there will be an eternal kingdom for those who belong to the son of David. And then the new covenant. That God will save sinners. And he will give them an everlasting kingdom. They will be joint heirs with him. And they will inherit eternal life. So we see that. We see all that just in this particular call to be prepared. Because why? Why Why are we reading that back into the text? No. Christ himself is the summation, the consummation of all the covenants. He is the fulfillment. He is the one to whom we look when we begin to embark on study of scripture itself. And that doesn't mean every passage speaks his name, but it means every event leads to God's culminating plan in redeeming uh, redeeming the elect in Christ. And so there's this sense in which he calls them to be ready. And the kingdom belongs to those who are ready. So it's not by his performance, but it's that he was a faithful steward to the owner of the house. It's by his allegiance. It's by his allegiance. Because one can perform religious duties and be disloyal to Christ. One can perform things that look as though they belong to Christ and be all the while disloyal to his name. And yet there are those who know he is coming. And that is us. We're certain. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're certain that he's coming. 
You know he's coming. You know essentially how this ends. And so we find them in verse 48. That there are those who know he's coming that are distinct from us. Because their reactions are different than ours. They know he's coming and it's not that they were surprised at the fact that he was coming. They grew complacent. They tried to put a time stamp on it. They said that he's not coming for a long time. And because he's not coming for a long time, then it drove their actions. It drove their, it drove their sinfulness and their disloyalties against him. So it's not that they failed to have the information. They failed to act in light of what they knew. And you see that even in the parable of the ten virgins ahead of this text. Instead of keeping watch and, ser- and serving those in their care... As those who belong to Christ, joint heirs do. Joint heirs take care of the kingdom. Joint heirs do not beat the, the, the slaves and the servants of the kingdom. Joint heirs do not drive out those who belong to Christ. Joint heirs act as though they are acting in the best interest of the eternal kingdom. And so you see that here. Instead of winning the drunkards, they drank with them. They destroyed the master's house. Instead of calling the people to come to the master's house and those whom they were supposed to lead to him, they led away from. And we have no indication that they did this in such a way so as not to claim that they were representing the interests of Christ. Because remember what this war is all about. That spiritual warfare is on the grounds of deception. That spiritual warfare is not about people who say they belong to Satan and people who say they belong to Christ. It's about people, two groups of people all saying they belong to Christ and they belong to God. Therein you get to the very root, the very crux of spiritual warfare. Because you see it here that the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. He even identifies that the master is his, that he belongs to the master. All the same as the righteously. He's saying that he has an affiliation to the owner. You see that the seed of the serpent, they want to be identified with the son only in its benefits and only as infiltrators to try to dethrone the son. All the while attacking him. Some do it more overtly. Some do it more covertly. But. The Lord puts a stop to all this by his return because it was at this time that the Lord would return unexpectedly. That people often even ask in their own hearts, how can the world and how can people be so wicked? Well, because it's all driving toward the great indictment of when the Lord himself will return and surprise them. It's a mission of shock and awe that when he comes back, it's going to cause a certain Not only disruption, but devastation to people who have built their own kingdoms. To some of these so-called professing churches that that are built like kingdoms. That the Lord's going to put a stop to all of them. And even the kingdoms of this world. But he was coming. And he would come when they didn't expect it. And he would come on that day and that hour when those who opposed him did what they did to assault him. Essentially, he would catch them in the act. 
Because it's not as though that they could grow in holiness and that their hypocritical natures would eventually be dissolved by the fact that he came. But this is a pattern. This is what they do. And so when Christ returns, he will find them doing what they do. And there will be no way to escape their own actions that will come under judgment, their own sins. My master is not coming for a long time. And verse 49, he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. So look at verse 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. The Lord is coming and when he comes back, he's warning his disciples that for those who are not found in him and for those who have tried to destroy not only the work of his hand, but the kingdom of God. And here the context is of those apostate Jews who would invest all their time in attacking the Messiah they were supposed to worship and attacking the apostles that they were supposed to follow. And attacking the scriptures that they were supposed to read. But that he would. He would cause devastation. And that he would punish them. And their punishment will be severe. And thus the Lord uses the uh, the severest of language. He uses language that demonstrates. That this is going to be perfect justice. And it's going to be very gruesome. And I believe this hour. It certainly calls for the preaching of a Christ who is merciful, but we had better start proclaiming a Christ who is going to cause wrath and devastation upon his enemies. Many people often ask, and perhaps they're asking you, how do they cause an impact in this world around them? Many Christians are wondering that. I would say preach God's mercy and preach God's wrath. You want to cause an impact in the world around you, that's how you cause it. Preach his mercy. And preaches wrath. Because then you're starting to really deal with God's will in this earth. And I say that because that's what Jesus did. Jesus does it in this passage when he's telling his people to be prepared. He's telling them to be prepared. And he's not talking about being prepared for a cruise ship. He's talking about being prepared for war. A war in which he will judge and he will punish and he will crush all who are not on his side. I believe that's the Jesus that we need to continue to speak about. Because let's be frank, as we look to this text, there's no more room for nice little uh, moral uh, TED talks. There's no more room for men to strut around without their Bibles and give you life advice. The blessing in the world in front of us, the thing that I'm probably the most happy about is we're starting to find out who's who. That in this hour, in this wicked day in which we live, we're starting to find out who truly belongs to Christ. We're starting to find out who invested their time in the master's affairs and who invested their time in the affairs of this world. Because the world in front of us is starting to equate everyone with Christianity who doesn't follow their system. And so we're about to find out who true Christians are. We're about to find out who's been doing this for money, who's been doing this for acclaim. Who's been doing this to follow and build their own kingdoms? And we're going to find out that at the very end of this, the Lord is coming to crush everyone who wasn't about his work. 
We're going to find out who's speaking out of their mouths and following this sick and insipid and wicked uh, movement uh, that's in the earth, that's upon the earth and prevailing upon the earth under critical race theory and out the side of their mouths singing the old hymns. We're going to find out who's who. And I'm thankful that that's taken place in the hour in which we live. And it's not about hedging your political bets. It's not about following leaders who will perhaps stop the 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 uh, the the, uh, the slide. It's about following Christ, who's going to crush the system itself. And I believe that that Jesus not only needs to be proclaimed, that Jesus needs to be followed. And why am I saying that? Well, because in the harshest language, Jesus says it himself, and he's preparing for. A death that will be vicarious, that will be one that satisfies the wrath of God against man and one that brings man into eternal life. You want application? Here it is. The Christian ought to live as though the world is going to kill him. The Christian ought to preach as though the world is going to brand him a traitor against their system and that will be met with a death penalty. The world has to begin to live like this. I'm sorry, the Christian has to begin to live like this in the world. The language, is, the language is harsh to those who do not want to be with Christ. And the language is this. Look with me as we draw to a close. After he says the master of that slave in verse 50 will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. Listen to this. And it says in verse 51, and will cut him in pieces. This is Jesus's words and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a eternal hell. This is eternal punishment. This is devastation on an eternal scale. But more than that, we cannot help but understand what this is. It will be perfect justice. It will be perfect justice. And he says he will cut them in pieces. And in this hour, in the sanitized, over-infeminate, sensitive world in which we live, that kind of language is not welcome. But it is the language of the Lord. And let me explain further, it is covenant language to those who study the word of God. I say that because just as God has cut covenants with men and his elect people, here he will cut to pieces those who have abandoned his covenant. So now we're talking about we cannot help but notice the language of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 15, 1 to 15, listen to this. That unconditional covenant whereby God mutilated the animals and passed through them to signify stipulations of his covenant with Abraham. And the need to keep the covenant or suffer mutilation by God's hands. So what God is dealing with is he's dealing with people who are saying they are sons of Abraham. And that they're the seed of Abraham. And since they assaulted the Abrahamic covenant, he is now going to hold them responsible to the judgments of that covenant. That they will not escape the stipulations of violating that contract. And that's what he's going to do to people who violate the Abrahamic covenant that he has made. The unconditional one that he has fulfilled. That's the language here. I will cut him in pieces. Because that's what he promised in Genesis, in the very beginning of the book of the law, that I'm going to cut the pieces those who do not follow the covenant. And so here he's going to do it. 
And he's going to do it to everyone who is not a seed of Abraham. To everyone who is not the seed of the woman. He's going to cut them to pieces. But it also shows you that the wicked servants are going to be cut off. They're going to be cut off. Because they are covenant breakers. They are covenant breakers. And so they're assigned to the place of the hypocrites. We talk so much about that because it is ever before us in Matthew and has been. But hypocrites are not people who are outright rebels. Hypocrites are people who are pretending to be righteous. They're pretending to be heirs of the promise. Pretending to belong to the covenant. Pretending to uphold and to keep the covenant. And so Christ is saying that a part of his judgment is to weed them out. Yes, he's coming to judge the world, but he's also coming to judge the hypocrites who pretend that they belong to him while also belonging to the world. And so Matthew is certainly driving a distinction at the root of this. But his here he cuts off the wicked servants and they will pay with their lives. They will pay with their lives temporally and eternally. Because he says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. So he kills them physically by cutting them to pieces and then he assigns them to hell. And essentially when you look at Revelation and you look at the war that's being fought. Everything leading up to it and the things that are taking place. And then the grand war in Revelation 19. You're watching God deal with a people who have broken his covenant. So there are consequences to breaking the covenants of the Lord. There's consequences to not kneeling and worshiping before the one who has fulfilled the covenant, Jesus Christ. So these are not simply matters in which we can erase in our minds. And how do we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Well, the Lord says in verse 42, I draw your attention back to it. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Look at verse 43. Be sure of this. Be sure of this. There's a certainty. Look at verse 44. For this reason. For this reason. You also must be ready. For the son of man is coming at an hour. When you do not think he will. May God bless this word from the Lord. Let's pray.